Good morning, Emmanuel. It's good to see you, even under these kind of peculiar circumstances. We've had a very weird spring, and I don't think I've ever felt so grateful to see and feel summer rolling into Chicago as I have this year. The gray skies and cold air have been replaced by blue skies and sunshine. I am having actual human interactions with people I don't live with. I have enjoyed dining al fresco on the sidewalks at little cafes. And the rain actually held off last Sunday and I was able to be with my small group and we received Holy Communion for the first time in 14 weeks. That's been wonderfully encouraging. At the same time, even these joyful circumstances have been shot through with reminders that not all is well in the world. It was so good to see people from church again, but sad to have to step back when new people arrived instead of moving forward with a greeting and a hug. I drove a few blocks north to Andersonville to pick up some carryout last weekend, and usually on a beautiful, balmy weekend, the streets there are hopping. Not anymore. It was sadly reminiscent of a ghost town. And of course, there are other changes as well. Both the pandemic and the latest exposures of racial injustice in our country were opportunities for leaders and citizens alike to recognize our common interests, to unite our efforts to curb the virus, and to seriously address corrupt and unjust systems. Instead, we have only grown more partisan, more reactive, more committed to what divides us. People that I have historically found to be both kind and reasonable in person are starting to invest in unkind, irrational, shame and blame tactics online. Sometimes it feels like I'm stuck in an alternate universe where things look deceptively homelike until they don't. I'm at home a lot now and my home is good, but my life feels less homely than ever. And so it's been really interesting as we move through our sermon series in the book of Jeremiah, I'm finding more and more points of deep connection. Theologian Walter Brueggemann wrote this about the book of Jeremiah. This book, he says, speaks to and from and about deep public disruption. It dares to reflect on the ground of disruption, on the practice of survival in the midst of disruption, and on life possibilities beyond disruption. In other words, the prophet Jeremiah, though he lived and wrote more than two and a half thousand years ago, speaks to our lives in America in July of the year 2020. He writes about the reasons behind deep public disruption. He writes about how to survive in seasons of deep public disruption. And he writes about what hope might be found in and beyond disruption. This is all stuff we need to know right now. There is a relevance and urgency to the message that God spoke through his prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, like every prophet of God, has the gift of seeing spiritual realities. Not only does he see what's happening, but he's given a clear vision of the spiritual underpinnings of what's happening the unseen spiritual realities that are playing out in ways that profoundly change our everyday life. 
Every prophet with this gift is also given the responsibility to speak out about what they see, to name the spiritual realities that undergird the historic, social, and political realities we experience. In this way, the prophets act on the advice that another prominent theologian gave to Christians. Karl Barth said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. And that is exactly what every prophet does. Now, granted, Jeremiah had neither a literal Bible nor a literal newspaper or even news feed. What he did have was access to God's take, God's perspective on current events and how spiritual and earthly realities are integrally connected. Every prophet also speaks a two-pronged message about those realities. The message always contains the warnings that we need, and it always includes the hope we can't live without. Today's passage from Jeremiah is no exception. First, Jeremiah reveals God's take on how his people, the nation of Judah, are living. In verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember the altars in their Asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country. God's special covenant people were supposed to have the law of God written on their hearts, not sin. Their committed relationship with the Lord was a mark of tender favor, and it promised to provide them with all the wisdom and power needed for unparalleled security as a people and a nation. God's law was a gift to be not only treasured in their hearts, but also lived out in their daily lives, manifesting the character of God in their interactions with one another. But God's people had forgotten the covenant law and forsaken their covenant love, and they remembered instead the cultic altars and pillars of Asherah. In other words, while they continued to observe the formalities of worshiping the one true God, they also regularly practiced the religion of their pagan neighbors. They tried to pull off a combination of God worship and idol worship. And for our purposes, I'm identifying idols simply as alternate sources of power and wisdom, unreliable but culturally mandated sources, the voices that you have to listen to and the power structures you'd better appease. Those are our cultural idols. God had revealed himself as the only true God, and he promised to provide all the wisdom and strength his people needed. But the people started supplementing their true worship with a little something-something on the side from idols. They hedged their bets by worshiping what their neighbors said were the real sources of power and wisdom. Jeremiah's imagery is targeted, and it's meant to sting. God had inscribed the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone with his finger, including the first, the Lord your God is one, you shall have no other God but me. But having turned now from those laws, the people engaged in sins that are now etched indelibly on their stony, faithless hearts. And not only that, these sins are engraved on the horns of the altar, the horns of the altar of the Lord were actual horn-shaped protrusion from the four corners of the altar in the temple. 
And the blood of the sacrifice was dabbed on those horns as part of the ritual that ensured forgiveness of sins. But now, in the place of forgiveness, a permanent record of sin. So, after laying out the basic facts of the nation's disobedience, Jeremiah proclaims how this divided worship is going to begin manifesting itself in deep public disruption. He continues, Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Jeremiah foretells the life-changing disruptions that are ahead. The people are going to find themselves living in harsh desert conditions. Now, there's a sense in which these losses, uh, capture, dislocation, servitude, are a punishment from God. And there's a sense in which these losses are natural consequences of how the people have been living. There's a verse in Proverbs that goes, For as churning cream produces butter, and as the twisting of the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. There is cause and effect in the spiritual realm, just as there is in the natural one. Our sin leads to death. Disobedience leads to dislocation. Betrayal begets anger. And unfaithfulness begets loss. Wherever you find people two-timing God, and thus turning their backs on the basic commands to love God and love neighbor, the world will become an inhospitable place. The cause and effect of this reality is not always apparent. It's not always obvious to the untrained eye, but sometimes it does seem pretty clear. For example, a country that embraces slavery and state-sanctioned racial, racial discrimination for centuries is going to reap civic unrest until that past is reckoned with. But Jeremiah does not stop with a diagnosis or the, of the causes of the desert conditions. Although he will not stop addressing the unpleasant realities that the people need to heed, he also never stops proffering the hope that God keeps faithfully extending, even to an unfaithful people. Even a season of exile in desert conditions is no cause for despair. We stray from God, but God wants us back. While it is not always his intention to rescue us out of desert conditions, it is always his character and his joy to offer all we need to flourish despite these desert conditions. Because of the goodness of the Lord, there is good news, amazing and surprising news. Life in desert conditions does not automatically mean that life will be a miserable struggle for survival. There are actually two very different ways we can approach life in the desert. There is an accursed way that will lead to withering and fading, which makes sense in the desert climate. But there is also a way of blessing that will lead to flourishing and fruitfulness even in those same conditions. And we, as image bearers of God, have actually been empowered to choose whichever way we will. And it's a choice based on one single criterion. 
See if you can hear it. In verse 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the one who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then in verse 7, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So, yes, it's laid out really clearly. The one thing that distinguishes between a cursed life and a blessed life is where you place your trust. That was true for the people in Jeremiah's day, and it's true for you and me right now. The fundamental error of the people of God was not this particular bad thing they did or that particular good thing they failed to do. The root cause of all sin, the sin that leads to all other sins, yes, even large-scale entrenched communal sin, begins with the deeply relational, deeply personal act of turning away from trust in God and the process of placing that trust elsewhere. Wherever loyalty is divided between the Lord God and the popular sources of human wisdom and human power, deprivation, disruption, and death follow behind. Now, trusting in flesh versus trusting in God can be pretty abstract. So we're going to jump ahead briefly and kind of riff off the single example of specific sin that Jeremiah offers in this passage. In verse 11, like the partridge that gathers a brood she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. So let's talk about these riches that were unjustly gathered. When the wisdom of this world regards economic well-being, for example, as a zero-sum game, the power structures of the world will align to defend any perceived threat without reference to justice as God sees it. There was a time in our nation when most of us felt that slavery was necessary to the national economy. We may not believe that now, but there are other similar lies that we as a nation tend to believe about our economic viability and well-being. So we continue to stack the deck against black citizens long after slavery was abolished. We're still doing this. When we believe these lies, we become vulnerable when we feel we cannot trust God to provide for us. So some believe that the health of the environment must be sacrificed for our big businesses to survive economically. Some believe that the lives of the elderly must be sacrificed for small businesses to survive economically during the pandemic. Some believe that the lives of unborn children must be sacrificed in order for women to survive economically. This way of thinking makes an idol of riches. Instead of trusting in God to provide what we need, we look anxiously and greedily to our merely human resources, and we start to give in to demands that we sacrifice the well-being of our neighbors. But riches acquired at the cost of justice will leave us. The truth is that our resources are not limited to what we can scrounge together for ourselves in competition with one another. There is another way. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. 
He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. We don't know how long this virus will continue to upend our lives. We don't know if the current national willingness to address systemic racism will last beyond the next news cycle. But even in a prolonged year of drought, there is a fountain of living water for us. The living waters are the life-giving word of God, and God himself is the fountain that they spring from. The landscape around us may be sterile, as far as the eye can see, but planted by streams of life that flow from God, we have no fear, no anxiety. Our leaves remain fresh and green, and by the power of God, we produce abundant fruit that can nourish others. This is an enticing promise, and it is 100% accessible to those who respond to the invitation to trust the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me, this breathtakingly generous and simple proposition needs more unpacking. I think for most of us, myself included, trust in the Lord is an unexamined slogan that has not always found traction in my life. For example, I may trust that God can save my soul, but I may not trust that he is adequately invested or effective in uprooting things like racism. In order to get stuff done, then, I look elsewhere. And to play off the Bart quote mentioned earlier, I'll take my Bible in one hand and my newspaper in the other, and I'll read my Bible for inspiration and comfort, but I'll study the newspaper for solutions to these desert conditions that I'm trying to survive. My Christian God and my Christian rituals are attractive and comforting, so I'll keep up my traditions over here in private. But since my confidence is shaky that the one true God is actually powerful and effective against systemic racism, I will look elsewhere for the wisdom and the power to affect change. See, I don't think that the people of Judah began worshiping Asherah beside every green tree and on the high hills with the conscious intention of breaking their covenant with the God they loved. In their context, worshiping the local gods and worshiping a multiplicity of gods is it's just what everybody needs to do in order to get by in the real world. To tweak Bart's imagery further, the newspaper we're reading fills us with anxiety even as it stirs our conscience in a new way. Now, we know that the Bible, in our other hand, is packed brimful with concern for impartiality and for justice. But ironically, the very fact that we've been holding it all along seems like a strike against it. After all, the church has had access to the Holy Scriptures for millennia, and yet, to a large extent, the church has been complicit in the idolatrous practice of sacrificing the well-being of some people to secure the financial viability of others. But rather than concluding that we have allowed our worship to become compromised with the worship of wealth, we bizarrely begin to question God's fitness to guide us. So anxious and urgent for reform 
we feel like we need to seek wisdom and power elsewhere. In every era of history, the invitation to place our trust in God alone is a radical one. To turn our hearts fully toward God and worship him as the only and ultimate source of wisdom and power involves shutting down every option, every other option for living that conflicts with God's law. It's a very big deal. And in a very real sense, we're actually not capable of doing that on our own. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Another way to translate desperately sick is to understand that our hearts have an incurable wound. We are sick. We are sick in our hearts. But praise be to God, he knows this about us. He's revealing this truth to us, and he wants us back. Aware that on our own, we can't supply even the one basic requirement of trust in the Lord, he is moved to provide even that trust that we need to invest in him. Later in this book, Jeremiah, God says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. The prophet Ezekiel, through whom God was also speaking to the people of Judah at a similar time under similar circumstances, God promises, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That future day, that future covenant has come. The new covenant is secured for us by the blood of Jesus Christ, and his blood is powerful enough to obliterate even the record of our sins that was etched on the horns of the altar. Through Jesus Christ, We have access to all the spiritual riches of heaven in a way that Jeremiah's contemporaries could never imagine. Among these riches is the theological gift of trust, the gift of faith, sufficient to restore true worship. And I believe that is the call of God on his church in this desert season, to send our roots deep down into streams of living water and to press into worship of the one true God more fully, more deeply than we have before. This is the blessed way. Now, this urgent call to worship is not a call to neglect the reading of the newspaper. God is vitally concerned with all that goes on around us. Jesus died for the well-being of our neighbors every bit as much, every bit as much as he did for our lives. The call is to trust God in such a way that your whole life is transformed into fruitfulness. Become like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. You will not fear when the heat comes. Your leaves will remain evergreen. You will not be anxious in the year of drought. You will not cease to bear fruit. The miraculous stream of God is referenced all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, because it is the ever-present, ever-accessible spiritual reality in the lives of every generation. And every generation is invited 
to turn away from trusting in ourselves, in other human beings, and turn toward that source of life. So I'll close with my favorite invitation then from scriptures from the book of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be, there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.